Here's a flash from the Medved Show, a flash sale. We just added a 50% off opportunity to getting an annual basic Medhead subscription. Now that makes it just $29.95 per year. That breaks out to $2.50 per month. Go to promo code MEDHEAD at michaelmedved.com. That's michaelmedved.com, the promo code MEDHEAD. And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And part of this great nation's greatness has been the ability to feel good, to feel inspired, to feel uplifted by our politics. It's not all supposed to be grime and embarrassment and outrage and incompetence. Uh, Sometimes it works out in the other direction. And that's why I uh, am so grateful for this brand new book that just arrived in the mail. It's just released uh, uh, this week. And it's a book by someone who you probably know of. His name is Chris Christie. He is a former governor of New Jersey, former federal prosecutor, and uh, increasingly prolific author. He is the author, most recently, of the new book, What Would Reagan Do?, Life Lessons from the Last Great President. Um, Chris, did you did you begin this book or begin thinking about this book while you were still running to be the next great president? I I began thinking about this book um, right around the midterms in 2022, and when I saw the continued lack of progress in our political system. Um, I just felt like Ronald Reagan and his life and career had a lot of answers for us that we had probably forgotten and neglected. And he was my first vote. I turned 18 in 1980. And so Reagan was my first vote. Um, And I felt like we needed to bring his life lessons, which informed the kind of leader he was, um, back to uh, back to a broader audience, so they could see once again that it can happen that you can stand by your principles, uh, but still find compromise in uh, in our country. You you have a phrase that is uh, very evocative and very uh, memorable. You say that Reagan was an expert at compromising without being compromised. What does that mean? Absolutely. Absolutely, Michael. And and what I'd say to you is that Reagan was a guy who understood um, how to say yes, how to find his way to yes. Um, But he did so um, by convincing others that his way was much closer to the right way to get something done. And you could see throughout um, our examination of Reagan in this book that this starts all the way back with him as a young child where he was in a home where his mother was deeply religious, very, very, uh, very, very strong principles that were rooted in their faith. Their father, his father was a salesman um, who was a guy much less rooted in those things. um, Had a bit of a drinking problem as well. 
caused a lot of difficulties inside the house from time to time for not only his wife but for his children. Um, yet Reagan saw himself as someone who could bring those two together inside their own family. So it started all the way back to that time in his life. And what we do in each one of the chapters, which cover a different portion of Reagan's life, is to talk about how the life lessons in that portion of his life, what it led him, what principles it led him to um, as the person that he became as a, as a governor and ultimately as the president. And uh, you you managed to bring this book out. Uh, yesterday was Reagan's birthday, and uh, we were celebrating on the air and celebrating uh, the arrival of this new book, uh, What Would Reagan Do? Life Lessons from the Last Great President. Uh, in terms of employing those last lessons and applying them to this particular moment in our political history, uh when you left the presidential race, to the very best of my knowledge, you haven't endorsed anyone else uh, as um, someone worthy of support for the election of 2024. Have you been thinking about that? Is there uh, any Chris Christie uh, endorsement trying to apply some of these Reagan principles to the current scene? Well, right now, I don't see anybody um, emerging who would be worthy of that, would be worthy of, of what you just talked about. And I, you know, I said this during the race, that I made a decision in 2016 when I got out of the race that time um, and made a decision that was purely based on politics and decided to endorse Donald Trump. He was the front runner. He was the person most likely to be the nominee in my mind. Um, and I felt like, okay. I'll go in there and politically try to help him as best I can because I didn't want Hillary Clinton to be president. I have no regret about the fact that I didn't want Hillary Clinton to be president. But making that decision um, with someone who I knew was flawed, um, but who I thought I could help to make better, uh, that turned out to be the wrong decision and the wrong reason to make an endorsement. And so I'm not going to make an endorsement this time based upon politics. When someone stands up and starts to say the things that need to be said in this country and people start being told the truth again in this country and, and commit themselves to getting things done for the people of this country, um, that's, that's when I'll stand up and support someone. haven't seen that person yet, Michael. I don't know if you have, but I have not. Well, there was uh, some echo from that kind of person. Uh, do you remember uh, which presidential candidate had this to say? is uh, those people who are coming over that border, many of them are walking hundreds if not thousands of miles to get there because here is where they see hope. Here is where they see freedom. Here is where they see success. Here is where they see that flag, which means for them, thousands of miles away in other countries, all of those principles. We are still the indispensable nation for the rest of the world. We need to be the indispensable nation once again to each other. We need to believe in America as much as they believe in America. Uh, you remember which, uh, which presidential aspirant had that to say? Yeah, it sounds very familiar, Michael. I think you just quoted me to me. Um, yes, I did. <laughs> and, and, I, and, and I absolutely believe that to be true about this country. And, you know, one of the things that we, we talk about in the book is 
when Ronald Reagan made the promise in his campaign for president in 1980 um, that he would nominate the first woman to the United States Supreme Court. And he not only said what he meant, he did it. And he did it very early on in his first term um, when he had the opportunity to do it. And I think we have too little of that now. Um, and, and when we write our, our chapter on Tip O'Neill, um, the lesson that I think Reagan taught us in that one was it's a lot harder to hate up close. And we don't have a situation now, unfortunately, Michael, in this country where our leaders are willing to do that. In fact, much more they're concerned about who to make us angry with so that uh, we don't support them and default to supporting the person who's making us angry. Um, it's, it's a horribly cynical way to go about things. And by the way, both parties are doing it. And, you know, Donald Trump just happens to be the loudest one, but both parties are doing it. And that's why you see the dysfunction you see on Capitol Hill, where, once again, today they can't agree on uh, how to secure our border. They can't agree that we oppose Vladimir Putin and, and further dominance by Putin in, in Europe. Um, you know, we, they can't agree on aiding Israel, despite the fact that it's only the, democ the only democracy in the Middle East and was brutally, viciously attacked in an unprovoked way on October 7th. And so we can't... Well, well one, of, one, of the, basic things. one of the things we were going to get to with Chris Christie, the author of the new book, What Would Reagan Do? Life Lessons from the Last Great President, is the most underestimated aspect of Reagan. People know he had strong convictions, but he was also a master negotiator. Uh, with other politicians here and with foreign leaders. Uh, what was a secret to his approach to negotiation? More coming up with Governor Chris Christie on The Medved Show. Here's a flash from The Medved Show, a flash sale. We just added a 50% off opportunity to getting an annual basic MedHead subscription. Now that makes it just $29.95 per year. That breaks out to $2.50 per month. Go to promo code MedHead at michaelmedved.com. That's michaelmedved.com, the promo code MedHead. Ronald Reagan's birthday was yesterday. Uh, he was born in 1911. Uh, so uh, it's a long time. Uh, and uh, there have been many, many books about Reagan. One of the best is the new book by Chris Christie, uh, former governor of New Jersey, two-term Republican governor of New Jersey. And he begins a book by talking about the first vote he ever cast when he became eligible to vote at age 18. He was at the University of Delaware, and uh, he voted for Ronald Reagan. The book is called What Would Reagan Do? Life Lessons from the Last Great President. And one of the things you do that is different from a lot of the other biographers of Reagan is you emphasize his skill, particularly at working with people and negotiating. Uh, what was the secret of Reagan's approach to negotiation that you write about in your book? 
I think it was twofold, Michael. The first was that he very firmly laid out his 100% position, meaning if he were to be able to get everything he wanted to get on a particular issue, he would lay it out very clearly, both publicly and privately, to those he was negotiating with as to what he thought the absolute right answer was. But also, secondly, understood that no negotiation could be successful unless both sides thought they had won something. And, and Reagan understood that. He understood that, you know, you, had, you couldn't allow people to walk away and feel as if they had been fleeced, feel as if they had had their pocket picked um, or they'd been bludgeoned into something. Reagan would use the bully pulpit to further convince folks of the popularity of his position to attempt to move them. But in the end, he never let any of the people on the other side walk away empty-handed. And I think that's something that is so missing in today's Washington, D.C. And the reason why we can't even get the most basic things done, like a budget um, that Reagan did under difficult circumstances with a Democratic House of Representatives, but still got much of what he stood for, but allowed his adversaries to walk away with something in order to save face and move on to the next challenge that would come. One of the uh, one of the things that uh, you uh, bring up is each uh, chapter, uh, which pertains to different issues, comes with a lesson that is to be learned, and uh, uh, you have a chapter that is incredibly relevant right now to what the country is going through about the immigration system and. Uh, you, you say, lesson learned, sometimes surprise everyone. How did President Reagan surprise everyone in handling of immigration? Because it was Reagan who put his own law and order credentials on the line. Um, it, and he did it in the context of saying, look at me, I'm the guy who stood up in California to make sure that our borders were secure. Um, but he then stood up and said, you know, to everyone, but I can find a way to solve this and surprise people by talking with passion and emotion about the immigrant experience. And, you know, it's, it's extraordinary. We, we talk in the book about um, a lunch that he had in June of 1981 um, uh, he, he came, Lopez Portillo came to see President Reagan. Um, but what he did was he brought with him Fernando Valenzuela, who at the time was a 20-year-old <laughs> superstar in his first season with the Los Angeles Dodgers. And um, Reagan, you know, was a huge baseball fan and knew exactly who Valenzuela was. Uh, but through a translator, he told Reagan, about the little town he came from in the state of Sonora in Mexico and how excited he was when he came to Washington to see all the monuments. And he said to Reagan, my dream was to play in the major leagues, and now here I am sitting between two presidents in the White House. This could only happen in America. And afterwards, staff members said that Reagan kept bringing up um, when, when his pollsters would warn him 
against supporting any type of path to citizenship for people in the country. He kept bringing up that issue. He kept bringing up the story. And they came to call it the Fernando factor. And what <laughs> Reagan understood was he was willing to stand up um, when he heard a personal story and be able to apply it to the much broader issue and problem. And, you know, he was a bit of a riverboat gambler, too. He knew that it was not going to make some of the people in his party completely happy. But he felt like if you could tell stories to people that made them understand what the results of the compromise would be, they were much more likely to accept the compromise because it was going to do something good for people in the country. And he did it on immigration, surprised people given his background. And, you know, he did it in a way that I think, you know, really dealt well with the immigration problem for a very long time. But quite frankly, he's the last president who did. We've been stagnant since then. One of the things that, of course, is particularly pertinent uh, to uh, learn some lessons from Reagan has to do with right now Ukraine's fight for liberty and, and the sense, and, and I, I believe you made this point during your presidential campaign as well, Ukraine is not fighting just for Ukrainians. They're, they're also fighting for the West and for the United States and for liberty and decency. Uh, what do you think President Reagan would uh, give as advice to President Trump about Ukraine? He would say, support them to fight now or we'll be fighting later. And if you think that Vladimir Putin is going to stop at Ukraine, you're naive and you don't understand history. Remember, um, it was Hitler who went into Czechoslovakia and no one in Western Europe stood up against him in early 1939. And what did it lead Hitler to do? It, it led him to go into Poland then in September of 1939. And you know what he said, Michael, too, is I read a book about this recently. He said they didn't go to war over Czechoslovakia. Why would they go to war over Poland? And when the British and the French did declare war after Poland, you know, Hitler was stunned because we hadn't taught him the lesson right at the beginning. Putin the lesson now, and that's what Reagan would have done. And uh, to send out a clear pick, uh, Chris Christie sends that message in his new book, What Would Reagan Do? It's posted up at our website at michaelmedved.com. It's a marvelous read uh, from a, a very necessary American, uh, Chris Christie. Uh, we will be right back on The Medved Show. He is a symbol of what an individual is capable of. Michael Medved. He is a giant among men. The Michael Medved Show. Well, thank you very, very much. Uh, there is a giant event that has uh, just been announced. Uh, President Biden is set to host a giant fundraiser uh, together with former presidents 
Obama and Clinton at Radio City Music Hall in New York City on March 28th. Uh, the venue's capacity is 6,000, which uh, suggests the campaign is looking to host at least a couple of thousand of supporters. Well, yeah. Uh, Unite the Country is a pro-Biden super PAC. It plans to spend upwards of $40 million uh, starting in late spring, focusing on Trump's mounting legal issues and the threat to democracy. The uh, ads will target uh, independents and Republican-leaning voters who either dislike Trump or aren't yet sure where they stand on the four criminal indictments against the former president. Polls have suggested that a conviction against Trump could damage his campaign hopes. <laughs> this is what they say in Hotline. Wait, a conviction could damage his campaign hopes? Isn't that a little bit understated? I mean, basically, what the polling shows is that, um, well, what the polling shows is that it would be a, a, a potentially a game changer. And, and then there, there is this. Uh, and it's a story that uh, I think is going to be gathering more attention in the days ahead. Wall Street Journal is reporting special counsel Robert Hoor. Now, you may think, which special counsel is that? I know about Jack Smith. He's a special counsel uh, assigned to Trump. Uh, I know about the special counsel uh, David Weiss, who was assigned to Hunter Biden. Robert Hoor is a special counsel who's supposed to be looking into Joe Biden and his handling of classified material. And uh, apparently, according to the journal, he has written a very critical report. The report, which could add a dynamic to the 2024 presidential contest, is expected to be shared with Congress and made uh, public uh, within a few weeks. Uh, Hoor isn't expected to recommend, is not expected to recommend criminal charges. But the report will include need de new details about how the documents were stored. Uh, so we have that going on. And uh, meanwhile, there's another question about the election that... Uh, I had uh, people I think it's sort of forgotten about, which is that there is an incumbent senator who is considered to have a very safe seat, but he's 82 years old. And will he run for reelection? Uh, there's a um, report that Senator Bernie Sanders has been quiet about whether he will run for reelection at age 82. Uh, Sanders, who ruled out a third White House bid last year, said uh, a month ago that he would decide in the near future on a re-election bid. But that same month, he made two high-profile pro high hires onto his team, which may be a sign that he is gearing up for another run. Anna Barr, who previously worked as a senior advisor for Representative Barbara Lee, she's one of the many, many Democrats who's running for uh, Diane Feinstein Senate seat in California. Um, and uh, she's also uh, this Anna Barr has worked for left flank strategies. 
I guess, appropriate if you're working for Anna Lee and Bernie Sanders. Uh, Barr also previously worked as Sanders' national deputy press secretary during his last presidential campaign in 2020. And um, the Jeremy Selvin, a longtime senior staffer for Representative Ilan Omar, uh, also just departed from that congresswoman's office to work as a senior advisor for Sanders. So he's probably running. If he didn't run, and this is kind of, I mean, every Senate seat with the Senate right now dominated by Democrats by one seat, and with the Republicans almost sure of gaining a seat in West Virginia where Joe Manchin is retiring and uh, where Trump carried West Virginia uh, with over 60% of the vote, it was overwhelming. And that is a, a very likely win and pickup for the Republicans. But this, uh, uh, the governor of Vermont right now is a Republican. He is a mainstream moderate Republican named Phil Scott. And he hasn't answered yet whether or not he is running for reelection. And part of the thinking is that he hasn't answered because he doesn't know what Bernie Sanders is going to do. Bernie Sanders said, no, I'm not running. The sitting governor, who's a Republican, that would be a chance for another Republican pickup. But it looks like uh, uh, Bernie Sanders is going to uh, continue and go for yet another term at age 82. I guess it could help Biden in the sense that it makes Biden look uh, spry and youthful <laughs> and uh, uh, uh Juvenile in in comparison to uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, was dealing with a gaggle of reporters uh, right after some of the back and forth on the House floor today. And uh, he was asked, what do you say to people who are concerned that Congress isn't able to even take care of its basic Function. Listen, this is clip five. Americans concerned that Congress isn't able to do basic functions. Well, it's just simply not true. We're, we're governing here. Sometimes it's messy. The, you know, the framers anticipated that you would have a system where people with very different philosophical viewpoints that come from different parts of the country and different constituencies would have different ideas on how to resolve their problems. But what they also anticipated is that we'd be able to get in a room and arm wrestle over public policy and come to consensus to move the ball forward for the most people. That is what's happening here. You're seeing the messy sausage making, the, the process of democracy play out. And uh, it's not always clean. It's not always pretty. But the job will be done at the end of the day. Well, the job will be done. And defining what the job is is, is still a challenge. Uh, and then um, Senator Lankford, who has taken uh, a lot of heat today from some of his fellow Republicans and has received a lot of admiration uh, from others, Senator Langford was on CNN and speaking to Dana Bash, and uh, Dana Bash introduced him and uh, uh, said this uh, about him, number 13. I thank you for coming on, and point of personal privilege, as you like to say in the United States Senate, I've covered you since you got here uh, to Washington back in, uh, in 2010, and I don't know of a more conservative uh, member of Congress than you, so... Uh, 
just to sort of lay out the facts where we see them. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Okay, and then he said this to Dana Bash, uh, clip 12. I'm legitimately surprised at where we are at this moment because as Republicans, we've done lots of press conferences at the border. We've had lots of conversations to say things have got to change. We, House Republicans, passed H.R. 2 saying we've got to have changes in the law uh, because the law has problems. So they passed a bill. It was a straight partisan bill. It was a very, very good bill. They passed a bill saying we've got to have changes in the law. Senate Republicans demanded changes in the law in October and said we're not going to move on other people's national security until we're dealing with our national security. And now we get to this moment. I've got so many colleagues that are backing away. And that, I'm not saying it's all based on the political reasons. Some will have legitimate issues and say, hey, I don't like this part of the bill or I wish there was more in it. Okay. Uh, there, there could be more in it if uh, they would allow the amendment process to go forward. And if the bill weren't, as they say, uh, so now so commonly in Washington, dead on arrival. Coming up, uh, Tucker Carlson in Moscow. Uh, Why is he so determined to uh, pursue it? And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, Tucker Carlson is in Moscow. And uh, right now he put out a video Uh, about his plan to interview Vladimir Putin. Uh, And I believe it will be before the end of the week that that interview goes forward. Here's what uh, Tucker Carlson uh, did in the way of explaining uh, why he thinks this interview is so important. This is clip 9A. We're in Moscow tonight. We're here to interview the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin. We'll be doing that soon. There are risks to conducting an interview like this, obviously. So we've thought about it carefully over many months. Here's why we're doing it. First, because it's our job. We're in journalism. Our duty is to inform people. Two years into a war that's reshaping the entire world, most Americans are not informed. They have no real idea what's happening in this region, here in Russia or 600 miles away in Ukraine. But they should know. They're paying for much of it in ways they might not fully yet perceive. The war in Ukraine is a human disaster. It's left hundreds of thousands of people dead, an entire generation of young Ukrainians, and it's depopulated the largest country in Europe. But the long-term effects are even more profound. This war has utterly reshaped the global military and trade alliances, and the sanctions that followed have as well. And in total, they have upended the world economy. The post-World War II economic order, the system that guaranteed prosperity in the West for more than 80 years, is coming apart very fast, and along with it, the dominance of the U.S. dollar. Okay, except for the fact that the United States economy is actually doing well right now, and uh, compared to certainly the Russian economy. Now, what what is he exactly saying that people in America have no real idea of what is happening in this region. Well, he goes forward and makes the claim that uh, uh, no one in the West has even tried to interview Putin. Uh, Listen, this is clip 
9 Not a single Western journalist has bothered to interview the president of the other country involved in this conflict, Vladimir Putin. Most Americans have no idea why Putin invaded Ukraine or what his goals are now. They've never heard his voice. That's wrong. Americans have a right to know all they can about a war they're implicated in. And we have the right to tell them about it because we are Americans too. Freedom of speech is our birthright. We were born with the right to say what we believe. That right cannot be taken away no matter who is in the White House. Okay, uh, I don't think anyone is planning to take away uh, Tucker Carlson's freedom to speech, but uh, the idea that that there are reporters out there who have been clamoring to interview Vladimir Putin, uh, or there should have been, uh, the fact is that people who are not viewed as very sympathetic to Putin, as Tucker Carlson clearly has shown that he is, uh, simply are not granted interviews. Look at the way they uh, treated Evan Gershkowitz, uh, who uh, was the Wall Street Journal reporter who has been imprisoned on bogus charges uh, for a year in, in Russia, and they're still trying to get him out. So the idea that uh, somehow President Putin respects journalism and the freedom of the press and uh, lives with that kind of uh, conclusion, it's a shame. Uh, meanwhile, there was a little bit of an exchange involving Karl Rove, a former campaign guru for President uh, Bush, and Stuart Varney of Fox uh, Business. And uh, uh, Stuart Varney asked uh, a question to which Rove gave a very conclusive and definitive answer. This is clip three. I keep hearing that Michelle Obama will be shifted into the, no, you're shaking your head, it's not gonna happen? No, look, 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 she hates politics. You read her bio autobiography, she didn't want her husband to run for the state senate, she didn't want him to run for the president, she is not a political animal. And besides, look, Barack Obama was my charge at the White House, I dealt with him for three years. He's a smart guy. He would know that if, if Michelle Obama woke up tomorrow and said, you know what, I've decided after a life of hating politics, I want to be the vice presidential running mate or run for president, people would say, you know what, that's Barack trying to get a third term as president and they wouldn't go for it. But the starting point is she hates politics. This is a weird obsession of the of a conspiratorial right, and it's just lunacy, pure lunacy. Okay, uh, <laughs> it's not as lunatic as those people, and there are some people on the extreme right who believe that Michelle Obama is not really a woman, uh, that her real name is Michael Robinson. That's not even worth talking about. It is a peculiar obsession. And the reason that it's hard to understand is if you think about Michelle Obama, if she actually did become the Democratic nominee, uh, how do you think she'd do against Trump? Well, for one thing, she has the age advantage. For the other thing, Trump in the Quinnipiac poll, recent Quinnipiac poll that showed, a, again, as most polls do, a close election between Trump and Biden, uh, it showed Biden winning women by 22 points. Now, that's Joe Biden, who is not necessarily the most appealing candidate to to women. But if he's beating Trump by 22 points, what, what would a Michelle Obama Trump 
uh, campaign look like? What would a debate look like? Uh, and again, there is no certainty at all. Trump has said that he's ready to debate Biden now and he's looking forward to debating Biden. But uh, is it a sure thing that Biden will agree to debate Trump? Uh, that's an interesting question that uh, if the nominations continue to uh, play out in such a predictable way, it's the kind of question we may be wondering about. Uh, also wondering about the big new movie that was released uh, on Friday. And uh, it's playing in theaters now. It's a uh, comedy spy thriller uh, with a an all-star cast. But is it worth uh, seeing Argyle? Check it out in this review. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. A reclusive writer of espionage thrillers suddenly finds herself dragged into a dangerous spy network that she knows nothing about in the romantic comedy thriller Argyle. Who are these people? Real life spies. Why would they care about me? What you wrote in your new book actually happened and you kicked a hornet's nest you didn't even know existed. I'm in some really big trouble. That's Bryce Dallas Howard as the central character, who it turns out has more layers of complexity than you would expect. Other stars like Superman Henry Cavill and conniving master spies Brian Cranston and Samuel L. Jackson also turn up, with Sam Rockwell as a surprising, long-suffering leading man. The storyline is preposterous, silly, but always intriguing, and the laughs are more generously emphasized than the thrills. Rated PG-13 for some often comic action. Three stars for the inventive and entertaining Argyle. And the one hesitation I would add to those three stars is film's long. <laughs> it is. It's almost two and a half hours. But uh, that is a challenge that a lot of films are offering uh, to try to lure people away from simply watching at home and back to theaters. Okay, speaking of back to theaters, the theater of politics